Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for war? Ladies and gentlemen, off to the races for another episode once again of The Conspiracy Farm. Jeffrey Wilson riding shotgun with my ever-present co-host, UFC Hall of Famer, eater of worlds, lover of ice cream, master of the tango, Pat Militich. What's up, brother? Well, a lot is up, Jeffrey, and we have some craziness going on down in Venezuela. I have for some time. We had some some really bizarre, bizarre scenes last night at the embassy, the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. last night. I, I really don't remember seeing anything like that besides, I don't know, scenes of Iran when our when our embassy was overrun by by the Iranians. But we do have a very knowledgeable guest who can give us some firsthand knowledge on everything that's going on in Venezuela because she was just there. She was just there. She is a friend of the show. Been here a few times. We're going to chop it up in just a second. Got a little bit of business to take care of, ladies and gentlemen. We got some new sponsors. As always, we got to shout out some love to the chemicalfreebody.com front slash farmer promo code farmer to get all of your health needs as it relates to gut cleanse, cleansing your body, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, people don't even realize how hugely important gut health is to the overall status of the human body. There's more serotonin, that lovely mood stabilizing euphoric chemical that's produced in the brain. There's more produced in the stomach than in the brain. So check all of that stuff out at chemical free body. It's not just about getting in your genes. Well, yeah, it's just overall super, super health, Health, uh, a health upgrade, man. Check out chemicalfreebody.com front slash farmer, promo code farmer, if you want to get yourself some of those products as well as we want to welcome my Patriot Supply, ladies and gentlemen. This is one of those things, I mean, the sweetest and storable food. We just got a sample the other day. Absolutely delicious. You know, we all have health care. We all, and health care, you know, health insurance, fire insurance, auto insurance. Some people even have life insurance. This is one of those insurance policies that is, you know, better to really have and not need than need and not have. We see it all over here in the Midwest. Crazy flooding. You know, Nebraska, Tornado Alley's got tornadoes. This is that season. Hurricanes, the grid goes down. You name it, man. With your family and everything at risk, you don't want to be without. Ladies and gentlemen, check out preparewiththefarm.com. Or if you want to talk to somebody, 888-803-1218. That is 888-803-1218, preparewiththefarm.com. And we also, last but not least, the concealedcarryclothingcompany.com, the c4.com. Exercise your Second Amendment right, cozy, comfortable, in style, and very reliable, superior designs right there at the C4.com. And last but not least, I have said that, but theconspiracyfarm.com. The website is up, www.theconspiracyfarm.com. It's your one-stop shop for all things TCF. And like my co-host, the champion, said, we have an incredible guest, friend of the show. I'm so happy she's back. I'm so happy she's safe. She did this return from Venezuela, the bold, the beautiful. The brave Eva Bartlett. How are you doing, Eva? Hi, I'm doing very well. Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> I appreciate it. You are more than well-deserved of it. So, like Pat said, we there's just been crazy things going on down there in Venezuela. And a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago when you were down there, I was asking you, what, what's really going on? Because you just never know about these things when you're paying attention to the mainstream media. You're just, either it's getting misreported, underreported. Tell me. I mean, we see... Five months ago, they're eating livestock. They're eating, you know, 
I, I'm seeing, I just heard a report today, 40,000 people have been killed because of sanctions. We hear, you know, tens of millions of dollars in, in medic, medicine and food aren't reaching the country. Uh, billions of dollars in, in Sidco gas company money they're not able to get. You know, Bank of England supposedly seizing a billion dollars in gold. Please tell us, Eva, what is really going on in Venezuela? Well, um, I, I guess we'll start with what I was uh, seeing and hearing when I was there in March. I was there from March 10th to April 1st. And that was at a time when, um, if you're looking at corporate media headlines, you would have been seeing things about Venezuelans uh, in a state of chaos, eating zoo animals, um, no food on shelves in supermarkets, pharmacies empty, that kind of that kind of thing. And uh, the first, first, I'll, I'll, I will utter a caveat. I will say that yes, there is there is desperate poverty in Venezuela, but you just mentioned the sanctions, and that's something that's deliberately overlooked by um, corporate media. They don't mention the effect of the sanctions on on Venezuelans. They like to deflect and say, well, sanctions have no effect except on the leadership. But we know that's not true from previous countries like Iraq and and, and Syria and many other countries. Yes. But what I was seeing uh, when I got there was uh, Venezuela very much like that I knew in 2010 when I lived there. I lived in Caracas for about five months, and I didn't see much difference. The main differences were the streets were a lot emptier, solely because there was uh, what is now known to be an attack on Venezuela's electrical grid, causing a power outage of five or six days. And that obviously caused the metro to not be running. And so the three million people that depend on what is essentially a free subway system weren't able to use it for a period of days. So the streets were thus emptier. But nonetheless, I still saw shops open, food stalls open, and life on the street was not chaos. Um, in, in the first week I was there, I was with the U.S. Peace Council delegation, uh, which was quite interesting because we had a chance to meet with um, civil society and also with leadership. But then I stayed on um, mainly because American Airlines canceled all flights um, to and from Venezuela. And I believe this is part of the constructing of, of chaos uh, that doesn't exist there. Um, so I, I ended up staying on until April 1st. And during that time, I was able to travel across Caracas to the poorest areas, um, just with a friend on his motorcycle, driving around and seeing that chaos did not exist. People were calmly dealing with the effects of the, the two major power outages that happened. Uh, people were lined up calmly, waiting at ATMs, lined up calmly for water distribution. And I, I like to uh, compare it to how it might be in any you know major North American city if the power was out for more than, say, three or four days. I think that there would be uh, some chaos, a lot of anger, perhaps looting. And in Venezuela, there was none of that. There was apparently looting in western Venezuela along the border with Colombia, and it's alleged there might have been some sort of um, elements from Colombia involved in that. But the notable thing is that I was told by different Venezuelan journalists that the looting, looting that did occur there in Maracaibo was mainly of a of, um, one particular uh, company, Polar, which is a major company in Venezuela, opposition uh, company. And I, I believe, was told that what was looted was soft drinks and beer. So it's not exactly what you'd be looting in a time of starvation. When I was going around to the different districts, I saw, for example, in, in Petare, which is, if you Google that, P-E-T-A-R-E, you'll find terms like the largest slum in Latin America. In Petare, the largest slum in Latin America, I saw signs of um, meat and cheese and chicken and other things being sold. And I saw vegetable stalls loaded with produce, even in the hilltop barrios that I went to. So, you know, people would say, well, you were only in Western Caracas, or you were only in downtown Caracas, you didn't see the poor areas. Why well, was in the largest slum in Latin America, and there was food being sold, and there were wealth, uh, healthy, well-fed people there. 
again, it's not to say there isn't poverty, but there there are ways around the fact that you know the average poor Venezuelan can't necessarily afford the um, super well-stocked, expansive supermarkets that you find in eastern Caracas where opposition supporters are. And these, I should know, these are opposition supporters are the same ones that'll cry and say Venezuelans are starving when they're living in areas where they can afford these luxury items. And I'm I'm sure you're aware of the work of Max Blumenthal, who did a Mm -hmm. pretty fantastic video in one of these massive supermarkets showing not only are the basics here, but the luxury items are here. But for the average poor Venezuelans, there, there are programs in place like the CLAP program, which feeds up to six million families across Venezuela monthly. Um, and you don't really, you don't hear about this in corporate media. All you hear is that the Maduro government is, um, you know, it's a regime that needs to be deposed because people are starving. Um, I went to another area, the Fabricio Odea, Oyeda, sorry, um, commune in Western Caracas in a large barrio called Katia, which is over a million people, desperately poor. And in this commune, I met um, what I would say is an example of most of the working class Venezuelans. I met the people that were working together on this commune who a few years ago produced 17 tons of vegetable mat, vegetables. This year, they'd already produced two tons in spite of the electrical outage. Um, and they were very proud of what they're doing. And they say that what they're doing, it's not only to help feed their community because they, they sell what they produce for 30 to 50% of the market value, but also it's a, what they said, uh, and I'm quoting, this is what we're doing against the economic war. Um, and, and actually, I have a number of videos on my YouTube channel and if people find that particular video, you'll find a, a group of um, Afro-Venezuelan women that we're speaking with at the commune. Then at one point, the translator that was with us asked them, are you hungry? And the women laugh and point to their very plump figures and say, no, we need to diet. You know, so this and this is a theme like it's not again, it's not to make light of the poverty that does right. exist. But it is a theme that I kept encountering because I kept looking, OK, where are the starving people? And um, in another barrio, I went around with a friend this collectivo leader, and he knew everybody in the community, so he wasn't like a stranger being offensive, but he was going around knocking on their doors and saying, are you hungry? And I haven't got this up on my um, YouTube yet because I still need to subtitle it, but the look on the faces, particularly the children, is priceless because the children's faces are like, why the hell you ask me that? Of course (laughs) I'm not starving, you know. Their look is incredulous, like what a stupid question. So the the 40,000 dead from sanctions, is is that inaccurate? No, that I do believe to be true. That was a report by economist uh, Mark uh, Wiesbrot, I think his name is, and I'm, I'm blanking. I should know the other because he's he's also been very good on Palestine. They based uh, their their study found that I think it was in 2017-18, 40,000 Venezuelans had died as a direct result of the sanctions, and they also said 300,000 more were at risk, and these included people that needed medicines that the Venezuelan government cannot purchase, precisely due to the sanctions on Venezuela. Yeah, so that's what I'd heard. So are those, so that that's why I'd heard forty k in about a year, which is a pretty high number. And are those numbers of kind of what these sanctions are doing as far as Sidco, that the the Venezuelan oil company, I think it's based in the U.S. However many billions of dollars they don't have access to, or the Bank of England sees seizing gold. Is there any validity to any of that? I mean, I'm not an economist, and I haven't looked into that. I was more focused on what I was seeing on the ground, okay. but I do believe 
I do definitely believe there's validity to that. And I would recommend people look at, for example, Alfred Desires, who is the uh, who is a UN special reporter, rapporteur, sorry, and he he went to Venezuela. I think he was the first uh, rapporteur to go there in something like 20 years. He's been very vocal and very critical, particularly the sanctions. And I don't want to mis misquote him, but I'll paraphrase. You know, saying essentially sanctions are a crime against humanity, and they're responsible for the deaths that are occurring in Venezuela. Not all the deaths, obviously, but I, they're responsible for this 40,000, for example. So I, I definitely don't think that um, reports of the, you know, the effects of the sanctions um, on, you know, Citgo and on Venezuelan um, companies, I don't think those are exaggerated. I think they're underplayed, in fact. When it just goes back to kind of old school, ancient Roman, just siege tactics, that's kind of what the sanctions are. It's like you just cut everything off from the outside, kind of starve them out. And then when you go in, it's a much easier, softer target. And that's almost kind of what's going on at the embassy. Their attempts to cut off electricity, cut off water, cut off food. So, you yeah. Know. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. I'll, I'll make two points in response. One, I'll just cite Christopher Black, who's a uh, he's a lawyer, a Canadian uh, lawyer, very phenomenal man. Um, he's done a lot of amazing um, act, writing and activism. Uh, and just citing from one of his articles that I had in my notes here, he, he says the sanctions are illegal. They violate the UN Charter. Only the Security Council has the authority to impose sanctions under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. They're also crimes against humanity because, like you just said, um, they amount to siege warfare, causing the deliberate suffering of civilians in an attempt to overthrow a government. So that's what they've been doing. That's, you know, I, I have personal accounts from Syria of doctors saying they couldn't get the medical parts they needed because of the sanctions, or another doctor saying, he tried to send, um, uh, I forget what the particular drug was, it was for cancer patients who were in remission. He tried to send like $70,000 worth of uh, cancer um, medications via a Red Cross in one of the um, Middle Eastern countries and was unable to because of the what U.S. banks were preventing him from sending that money. So that's just one kind of brief glimpse into the effects of the sanctions. And then the other point I was going to make, what was that? What was it you just said? Because uh, Oh, the embassy. Yeah, the embassy is a kind of a, a, a mini kind of um, look at what's happening in Venezuela. Because, yes, it's an example of the, the people, the, the embassy collective, the protection collective that's been protecting the embassy for 34 <clears throat> days until today, uh, being not only affected by a siege, which has been preventing them from receiving food and, and things they need, you know, basics they need, but also they've been receiving the abuse of this right-wing extremist, violent, abusive opposition that the West is supporting. And this is the opposition that is in Venezuela. This is the opposition that Juan Guaido, who's largely unknown in Venezuela until this year, uh, when he self-proclaimed himself as president, uh, this is the kind of opposition that he represents, this abusive, foul, um, hateful opposition and this is the opposition that the west wants to see uh you know replace the elected president pat you want to jump on in well i mean when i think about all of this stuff that's going on that has gone on over this shorter period of time when we look back i mean you know for people to kind of understand i mean under who was it president perez and caldera were previous to chavez right we had pretty good relations with venezuela during those times and then when chavez came along and Right around 2000, was it? Was he elected? 98, I believe. What's that? 98, I believe. 98. So, um, and things started to go south. Just so people have a little bit more context to the history, America was, I believe, in 2002, somewhere around there, was accused of a failed coup attempt that really started kind of things going south for the United States and Venezuelan relations, right? 
I think I think the election of Chavez is kind of when it began, and that's kind of what's happening now. Like even just alluded to, as long as it's a kind of a right wing government that's cool with the U.S. and the U.S. national interest, that's cool. But if it's so, that's kind of the weird thing. It's obviously more about natural resources, but they're going to blame the failure of this government on socialism, which is kind of weird. But you know, that's a whole kind of another conversation of why why these things are happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, when I was uh, in Venezuela, so two areas I went to, uh, of the areas I went to, Katia, which is in Western Caracas, the poor area that's over a million uh, impoverished Venezuelans, largely Afro, uh, Afro-Venezuelans and indigenous Venezuelans, not the whiter, fair-skinned, uh, upper-class Venezuelans that are largely in, you know, Eastern Caracas, upper-class upper neighborhoods like uh, Altamira, et cetera. Um, so in Katia and, and also in um, a hillside uh, community, Ciudad Mariche, I met Venezuelans who talked about how life was before Chavez, how these Afro-Venezuelans were, like the, the opposition types were so racist against them, how they didn't have any rights before Chavez came to power. And when Chavez came to power, then suddenly they had the option to actually be educated, to to not be illiterate. You know, So their lives changed dramatically. Um, and when I went to... I went to a couple of different um, pro-Maduro marches, pro-Maduro anti-imperialist marches, and the people I met there were very well well versed, very educated people. They knew their history, they knew what they were out marching for, what they were defending. They were very well aware of what America's trying to do to Venezuela because this is not a new thing. I did try to go to pro-opposition marches for the sake of seeing what they had to say. The first time I tried, nothing materialized, that was on March 16th. The second time, I literally went around on a motorcycle taxi for over an hour trying to find opposition supporters and couldn't find them. Um, I did find a small group of Maduro supporters marching to a larger Maduro rally. Finally, I found uh, a couple handfuls in um, Altamira, which is supposed to be an opposition uh, stronghold. and. They came over, one woman shoved some sign in front of my camera trying to block me from filming. And I'm asking her why she's doing that. And she said, we don't want you filming, we want you to come over where we are. And then I said, look, what, do you, what are your demands? And she said, we're starving. And she clearly wasn't. And then a very well-fed guy said, we're, we're not starving, we want an end to the usurpation, which is this word that I guess Guaido has invented for you know the pro-opposition types to be using. And I said, you know, what else do you want? Like, aside from this end to the usurpation, he said, we want free and fair elections. And I said, you you did have them in 2018. They were deemed some of the most free and fair in the world by international observers. And he said, well, he basically said they were paid off, you know. So the, the contrast between the, at least the couple of opposition supporters I met and the many, many pro-Maduro supporters I met couldn't be greater. They're, um, yeah, they're, again, they're just very well aware of how life was before these, you know, policies came into play uh, when Chavez was elected, and and how life could be if America was able to impose Guaido or some other puppet. It, and you know, I found it interesting because I recently just was reading. You know, I'm not from Venezuela. I'm not down there. I didn't know about the, I guess, basically the racial tensions as well. So it just kind of reminds me of what's going on in this country. They're, in my opinion, they're trying to pit all of us against each other racially, politically, have and have not. And you know, Venezuela is just a perfect example of how that can manifest into what we're seeing down there right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's just possibly. that's just my opinion. But I mean, it's I, I was just unaware that, like you were saying, you know, you have a certain class that's more kind of fair skinned, whatever. But I, mean, I was looking at some of the protests last night and you just heard some like, you know, I'm going to be I'm whatever they were saying. You know, you're 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 um, 
you're not human. You're going to still be an Indian tomorrow and I'm still going to be uh, whatever. I mean, it was just uh, that racial yeah, aspect. I just was I was just unaware of it. I mean, it's obviously just unfortunate, but just another thing, like I said, in this country, another cylinder they're firing on to keep everybody divided. And obviously that's happening in Venezuela and a little bit of everywhere. But it's just it's just unfortunate to see that going down, because, again, like you just mentioned a little bit ago, this is this is not a new playbook they're reading from. They've been doing this. I mean, you go back to Nasser nationalizing the Suez Canal or Mosaddegh in, 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 in Iran or United Fruit in South America back in the day. It's this is literally the same playbook. And they just pit both sides against each other. And, you know, we they create this narrative of, you know, it's it's a dire this Hegelian dialectic of it's such a problem that usually we create via the sanctions and there's a reaction. And then we go in to provide the solution to the problem we created. So it's just that's what's so frustrating about this. It's the same thing happening over and over and over and each time we just say no 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 this time it's different it's different when you got assholes and part of my language you got john bolton and elliot abrams i mean it's just it's crazy to me it's just crazy to me because we kind of just keep falling for the same thing every time and it's just kind of rationalized and no we got to do this and here we are you know about to go to war with iran too it's super super frustrating and like pat said what we saw last night i've never seen anything like that before in my life other than other than what went down in iran I mean, it's just yeah, I, I would recommend people look to VenezuelaAnalysis.com. It's all one word. Um, they they have excellent reporting um, by Venezuelan writers, by also by foreign writers that are living there or have been living there for a while. Um, they're uh, quite a good site for um, I would say pretty objective reporting. Um, also, just to skip forward, I gave a talk in Toronto a couple weeks ago. And during the question and answer period, somebody mentioned this issue of uh, racism. And so I was talking about, you know, some of the stuff I heard. And then this man, Ronald, um, he's Venezuelan and he he's Afro-Venezuelan. He he got up and he, he spoke so eloquently that afterwards I, I pinned him down and said, I've got to interview you. <laughs> and so that's on my YouTube. And I, I just I have that open. I just quote a little bit of what he said. Uh, he said in 1999, for the first time ever in any country in South America, a law was passed to not discriminate against people of color. He said people that had a voice have, sorry, people that never had a voice now have and will never give it up. Um, he said you can go to the remotest area in my country. Everyone can read. Everyone knows their rights and knows their voice counts. And that's an interesting um, point because when I was in, for example, Plaza Bolivar, which is a main square in Caracas, people would come up to me and just start talking to me about politics. And one, like often when they do, they would start citing the constitution and why what, what Juan Guaido is trying to do imposing himself as um, interim president is against the constitution. These people, like, like uh, Ronald said, they very well know their rights. Um, so that's one thing. And then just what you were saying, um, I, I see that RT has published an article I've been working on and it's, my, I titled it Venezuela isn't Syria, but America's war tactics are the same. And the reason I said that is because I, when I started writing about Venezuela or tweeting about Venezuela, I get people saying, oh, you know, I really like what you've been doing on Palestine and Syria, but this is different this time. You know, Venezuela is different. And I'm like, okay, yeah, internal differences, sure. But the overall picture, right. it's, it's a playbook for regime change, what's going on. Exactly. And what do you think? I mean, it seems, you know, the 50s, you know, the coup in, in Iran and, you know, Allende in South America and Pinochet obviously was very different. There wasn't the Internet around. What role? I mean, even last night, just seeing the feedback of of people seeing what was going on in the embassy. What role do you think the Internet is playing? Like the coup, this quote unquote coup didn't go over like they wanted it to a week or so ago. What role is the Internet playing in them not able to kind of implement their old playbook as usual? Um. 
I, I believe that because of independent voices and also, you know, voices in the countries that are being targeted, being able to express themselves and having a platform on social media, I think that is changing things because uh, when uh, invasions were occurring in Iraq and in prior invasions, that wasn't possible so much, right? So. Uh, the corporate media basically dominated the narrative. And I remember in January 2017, I gave a talk in Montreal um, and was a bit harassed by two Canadian prostitutes. And then afterwards, a guy came up to me and he said, you know, I used to be with La Presse. That was one of the prostitutes that was there. He said, I was in Iraq when it was invaded and I wrote a long article and at great difficulty had that article, you know, um, uh, he was... uh, sent out of Iraq by fax or something, I don't know, you know, no internet, it was difficult for him. He said uh, the journalist that had been harassing me uh, was his editor at the time. She cut it down to under 400 words, totally changed the tone from Iraqis reject this invasion to Iraqis welcome the invasion. <laughs> and so that's kind of a, a good example of the, the the corporate-owned media had the ability to dominate the narrative. I personally think they've made such a laughing stock of themselves now, yeah. you know, with their Syria war propaganda, um, that I, I I don't know. It's hard for me to gauge like uh, how much the the public has lost confidence in the corporate right. media. But more and more, I have people telling me we don't believe in in them, and these are just normal people. Well, who aren't not even just not even just Syria. You know, WMDs, Gulf of Tonkin. It's unfortunate that you know going back to your Operation Mockingbird, how the media is so complicit. And Pat and I were at a symposium about media you know, at this, at this public library back home, and we, you know, basically had to let them know, man, the media has been complicit. When you see the Kuwaiti's ambassador's daughter saying, you know, they're pushing over incubators and just basically towing the line of the state, that's all they pretty much seem to be is a regurgitating wing of the state. And there's just no, there's no challenging anymore, except for, you know, podcasts or shows like this. You don't find this in the mainstream media at all. No challenging of the narrative. Absolutely not. No. And, and in fact, uh, as you know, the mainstream media has been um, very active in trying to demonize those of us who have been, you know, uh, on the ground and reporting contrary to their lies. So, um, it, but all the same, like, I am still surprised that people uh, believe that this time is different in Venezuela. It, it, it does boggle my mind because you made the um, reference to the incubator baby um, fabrication, you know, and so many, so many lies have been recirculated. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if soon we start hearing about chemical weapons in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah there you go. I mean, you know, when we talk about Guaido, is that how I pronounce his name, Guaido? Yeah. I mean, one in five statistics that I have, you know, looked up and, you know, talking to a couple other friends who are Intel folks and another gentleman who's been a friend of mine for well over a decade, uh, close to 20 years, who's been one of the upper echelon folks doing a lot of the deals for two years in Venezuela. He's been knee deep in Venezuela at the upper echelons for quite a, quite some time. But I mean, they're saying basically Guaido, you know, one in five Venezuelans had even heard of the guy before, you know, his phone call with vice president Pence when he declared himself suddenly the, you know, the, the, the unelected uh, newly named president of the country. It's just, it's very bizarre how this has all gone down. And Jeff and I were talking, saying, you know, this guy has to be a product of the School of the Americas. He had to have been prepared at, at Fort Benning and, and a lot of this, but apparently that's not the case. He he was either prepared somewhere else or we just picked him out of, out of a basket and said, you're the new guy. Yeah, I, you know, I... I... I know I've read that he has been groomed by the states. I can't remember where it was, but definitely he's not just like a he, he has he's definitely been groomed. I right. just uh, right I can't remember where, but yeah, it was, just wasn't at Benning this time. 
Right. But he, he certainly doesn't represent <laughs> like the will of most Venezuelans. And, um, you know, when I was at the March 16th demonstration, it was I'm not great at estimating, but another journalist that I got to know there, he, he estimated tens of thousands. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was actually the number of people that came out that day because we were out. I was out for uh, between two and three hours walking and filming and talking with people. And they were out from morning till probably 7 or 8 p.m. Um, and the people that I was seeing there again were tended to be the kind of uh, Venezuelans that are not um, given voice in corporate media, so Afro-Venezuelans, Indigenous Venezuelans. And um, when I talked with them, they were they were like, no, we don't recognize Guaido. They were saying, fuck Guaido. You know, Maduro's our president. On the 30th, I went to, um, Another it was a, a it was another demonstration, but I actually was able to go to a, a motorcycle rally, and it was a it was a motorcycle taxi, which is a common thing in Venezuela, motorcycle taxi union. So I interviewed two of the union leaders, and just a quote from them, um, he was saying one the first guy was saying well speaking very aware um, because basically. Uh, this union is part of uh, colectivo, and colectivos are very demonized in our media. They're they're meant to, they're made out to be thugs, you know, paid thugs, thugs of Maduro quote unquote regime. Colectivos are just collectives, and this is actually what the the group that was um, um, living residing in the Venezuelan embassy. They're called the um, uh, Embassy Protection Collective, and. Sorry, just as an aside, you, you probably know this, but maybe people don't because I didn't know before I went. Um, collectivos can be anybody. They can be any sort of uh, organized grassroots group of people that get together for a particular cause, you know, any social cause, environmental, whatever. American citizens. That's, you know, a lot of them are Americans. Right. So um, in this motorcycle union, Collectivos said, number one, we're not terrorists. The terrorists are the this lackey. He actually said lackey opposition that the U.S. is kind of foisting upon us. And another one um, said, um, well, I just want to cite him. He said, we're, we're out marching today um, to support their constitutional president, Nicolas Maduro, and also to make a call to the world, the empires of the world, he specifically said, uh, to take their hands off Venezuela and respect the self-determination of the people. There are people who decided to be free, a people who, who demands, um, uh, this part's a bit garbled, but anyway, he's essentially saying, respect us. We've made our decisions and we know what we're doing and we don't want your puppet government. And, he, and then he, he also specifically said, we say to you, Guaido and Trump, you took away our water, you took away the light, electricity, but you ignited our soul and we're determined um, to defend our country with our lives if necessary. And at this point, I think it's worth mentioning that there's a, a militia, a volunteer militia of up to, it's around 2 million people and it's growing. And these include elderly people who are joining, taking lessons in how to use arms and defend their country. This is in addition to the National Army, which is a few hundred thousand, I believe. It, it, I mean, and I, I love that, man. But it, it just seems to me, and I hate to sound like a defeatist or just waving the white, white flag, but I've just seen this play out over and over again. I mean, does it does it matter who's doing what on the boots on the ground? Because we'll never really know their intentions, et cetera, when the mainstream media is literally controlling the narrative on all of this and thus controlling people's perceptions on what happens. That's that's really kind of for me. It just seems like that's the linchpin, the, the media being able to control what is happening and what's, you know, the narrative of what's happening. What, what end game? What do you what do you see? Does do you think it's just going to. What's going to happen in the embassy? What's going to happen in Venezuela long to long term in game? Well, so the embassy for people who don't know, maybe I should just read from um, 
a there was a notice put on the the embassy in, in Washington DC where this collective of activists old and young have been residing for as of yesterday it was 34 days and um, basically they've been harassed by opposition supporters as we already mentioned violent uh, abusive types also th these these people have been you know uh, rough housing rough handling um, people that have come to support them to bring food or whatever, abusing them um, in very racist, abusive, sexist language. Is that, I'm sorry, and, I don't mean to interrupt you, but is that organic or is that kind of paid provocateurism? Because that's kind of the vibe I got last night when I was hearing people being called different racial epithets and like you said, sexual assaults. I, I would go with the latter. I suspect, I can't prove it, but I would suspect the latter. I mean, I can just give you an example. Like when I started tweeting about Venezuela, suddenly out of nowhere, like, you know, tens and then hundreds of accounts, uh, a lot of these accounts happen to be, you know, new accounts, possibly empty troll accounts. Others may be real people, but I, I think they have organization. I think that there's um, because Venezuela is the new, new, new target, although it's an old target for them. I do think mm -hmm. that, um, especially in the case of the embassy, these are most likely paid provocateurs. And the fact is that journalists inside um, were reporting, you know, uh, the police and the security services were doing nothing to stop them from breaking embassy, pro breaking into embassy property, you know, vandalizing it, being abusive. And then yesterday, uh, I believe it was in the morning, there was a notice posted dated May 13th, um, basically saying this is from, uh, apparently it was from uh, some US, US um, officials, although it wasn't <laughs> It didn't state who it was, but they said it had no letterhead, no notary. It was like somebody opened up a word document and literally just printed it up. That's it was. Right, that's what the yeah, police exactly. officer was reading off too. Yeah, it's insane. I'm and, sorry. Go ahead. And so it said, you, "The United States recognizes ambassadors Vecchio and Tare as the representatives of Venezuela, uh, with lawful control over the property." And so then they went on to say, you know, people, anyone who refuses to comply with these requests and orders to depart will be trespassing in violation of blah, 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 and will be arrested. So um, a number of the activists who had been there did leave um, facing what they assumed would be arrest. I think four remained. I believe they still remained. I've been traveling today. Um, they weren't arrested. So that's good to know. I know people on Twitter and, and Facebook were very, very active supporting them. And uh, for example, Ron Carlos, or sorry, Carlos Ron, who's the vice minister of foreign affairs for North America, um, he was he was tweeting too. Like these are people who are guests of the Venezuelan government. This is our embassy. They have every right to be there. They are not trespassing. So um, I mean, I, I guess it was a small victory that uh, the, the four remaining people inside weren't arrested. But it, it's it it's really uh, it does go to show. Um, what a like what a state the America is when they can trespass on embassy property yeah. and they can allow hooligans to deface and, and vandalize it in in hopes of you know occupying that that embassy and handing it over to illegitimate non-ambassadors um, because their their attempted coups multiple attempted coups in Venezuela haven't worked. And you see a lot of people online. It's like they're trespassing. Get them out of there. It's, I mean, it's, I don't even. It's. I was kind of losing my shit last night just because think, it was yeah, froze frustrating to watch. It comes, down, it comes down to, look, we don't. I don't agree with socialism. Jeff doesn't agree with socialism, but you know, you you just can't march in and take over an embassy. That's that's just not what America's supposed to be doing. Right, right. And we just saw it, you know, blatant as hell. And that's <clears throat> it's interesting. They did kind of pull back. But uh, a question: I was listening to Trump today. I forget where he was at, but he was saying that the America is now. 
um, import. No, they they have more oil. They're exporting more oil than they ever have in like sixty years. They're importing less and less. But I mean, you would be you know a dummy to not think that some of this has to do with the natural resources going on in Venezuela. In addition to the internet making it kind of hard to implement their plan, we've already seen China drop off a couple uh, care packages, and obviously Russia has some bombers there. How much? Is that presence deterring these 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 hegemonic actions? And to kind of play the devil's advocate, if you will, you know, it's it's one of those. Well, I would rather not me, but the U.S.'s rationale is like, well, I'd rather us have their oil than the Russians or the Chinese. What are your thoughts on the Russians and Chinese role um, down there in that whole notion of like, you know, if anybody's going to control their oil in this hemisphere, it needs to be us. Um. I don't know the extent of their uh, cooperation with Venezuela. I know they've been invited. I know they have been providing aid, and they've been doing so through appropriate channels and not trying to ram it through a border uninvited. Um, I guess what I will say is that I, I believe that Russia's role in Syria, for example, has been uh, life-saving. Of course, the, you know the the soldiers, the, the Syrian Arab Army and allies have been truly heroes, but Russia coming to Syria's defense in, uh, I believe it was late 2015, was game changer. Um, the U.S. has been extremely hypocritical in saying these countries cannot intervene when it's the U.S. that's illegally intervening in all these countries. Um, I don't, and the, the, the whole point of your question I forget now, but I think um, I, I'm very happy to see Russia's presence there, China's presence, Cuba's presence there. I think that if they weren't there, um, Venezuela would be under a lot more pressure. That said, the people are going to, they're not going to go down without a fight. Well, that, that they, was kind of the thrust of what I was saying, like the, their presence, Russia and China's presence, how much is that going to deter? Because, you know, 50 years ago, that just wasn't happening and we were able to kind of walk through. And now with the power of the media controlling the narrative, it makes it so easy for these wars to take place. But when you have some huge superpower right there, it's like, ah, no, 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 no. It makes it less less easy for John Bolton and these psychos to do what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unless they really want to start a massive third world war. Which, again, in the last 40, well, 72 hours, I guess I, could, I don't want to shift too far from Venezuela. But, I mean, in tandem with this, we now have not that the aircraft carrier was. I mean, we already had ships and stuff outside straight to Hormuz, et cetera, et cetera. But the symbolic move of this big aircraft carrier moving in outside of Iran. Here we are. And then I wake up today and Trump and Bolton are setting up military plans similar to what happened in Iraq because Iraq was such a huge fucking success. Well, it's, like, it's not just the it's not just the Abraham Lincoln, but another carrier group, I believe, was just sent over also. And, and when you I was I asked my I asked my friend today when I was on the phone with him, I said, our, our because we were originally talking about Venezuela, because that's where he spent a lot of his time. But he's he got he cut his teeth in the special forces running and the agency running guerrilla teams against other guerrilla teams that his buddies were running, destabilizing governments down in South America. So that's the world that he knows very well right. and, and the tactics and techniques and things like that. But, you know, when I asked him, number one, are we are we going to blow the hell out of Iran? He goes, they better they better watch their asses right now. Let's put it that way. But when we were talking about Venezuela, Russia really stepped in after a gentleman by the name of Harry Sargent did a big oil deal down there because he bought a massive, uh, a massive blacktop company. I mean, it's so big that he had to go acquire his own oil deal to supply his blacktop company. Let's put it that way. And uh, we've got at least 5,000 troops sitting in Colombia ready to go. Um, things, things are getting a little... A little hairy down there. Let's put it that way. And so sure. it's the the stage is being set, and and something on top of that that's even more interesting is it was a while back 
where where Marco Rubio was tweeting out about uh, Maduro, you know, um, getting a bunch of gold and a bunch of, of money out of the country, uh, preparing for his exit and talking a bunch of smack when he didn't know what he was talking about. When actually it was a uh, uh, um, United Arab Emirate uh, higher up that had actually bought three tons of gold from Venezuela, and it was actually done. It was a it was a, a legit deal through the, the international monetary guidelines and, and the central banking system and all of that. It was supposedly a very legit deal. But but here's Marco Rubio on Twitter going off, not knowing what had, what had transpired. And basically, the United Arab Emirates called D.C. and said, you better shut him up because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you can you can look at his timeline and see where where Rubio goes completely silent. Because he he basically got his ass smacked into place. Well, that role, like you said, you know, Bolivia, Colombia, those, I mean, obviously, ideologically, those are more right-wing countries. What role are they playing in kind of facilitating this? Because I've noticed, you know, Bolton, and they're down there with Bolivian president and Colombian president, and everybody's very chummy-chummy. Well, I mean, if you have any insight, what are your thoughts on Bolivia and Colombia's role in helping facilitate these this, you know, Regime change, coup, whatever's going down there in Venezuela. Bolivia, I'm not so so much aware of. I, I have been traveling the last couple of weeks, so you'll have to excuse me there. No, that's but, all right. That's yeah. all right. Colombia, I mean, uh, was instrumental in the um, the the shenanigans that occurred in February. I think it was February 23rd on the border when they when the U.S. was trying to ram through quote unquote aid. You know, they they sanctioned the country, they deliberately impoverished the country, and then they tried to send a paltry amount of aid, which was right. um, self-suspect because my my friend and colleague Ahmed Cabello of Press TV was there and he said um, some of the quote-unquote aid he saw were like wires and he's like what why are there wires and what's supposed to be humanitarian aid as an aside it's weird well so it's but it's an important question because there's this term called guarimbas and these were um, violent street protests particularly in 2017 but also in previous years which saw opposition supporters barricading entire neighborhoods and violently preventing people from going to or from work um, I've even heard that they were attacking people shooting people if they tried to go through the barricades I was also told and this has been um, I've heard this from multiple sources that they would hang wires at kind of um, at the height in which uh, if you're driving a motorcycle, basically, if you ram into that wire, you can be clotheslined or more morbidly decapitated. Um, so these wires are at least um, instrumental in, in erecting barricades, perhaps uh, more morbidly in, you know, setting up traps for people. Um, That's twisted. Uh, it is twisted. I, I first heard that from Larry DeVoe, who's the head of a human rights group in Venezuela. And then I later heard it. Now, I can't remember the source. I'd have to get back to that. But I've seen it in other reports on on these guarimbas and, and the violent nature of them. And I, I, people might not be aware, but like in these guarimbas, um, opposition supporters not only attacked what they perceived to be Maduro supporters, but they, in in some instances, they burned uh, supporters alive. And one man, I Orlando heard that. That's Cabrera, crazy. He wasn't apparently. He wasn't even a supporter. Or at least he wasn't uh, in that particular location as a supporter. He was just going to or from work. He was attacked, stabbed, and burned to death. Um, just truly um, shocking behavior from this this opposition that we're supporting as the opposition that should be um, you know in power in Venezuela. But, but back to Colombia. So on February twenty third. Colombia was at least instrumental in um, trying to enable these aid trucks to be rammed through into Venezuela's uh, borders. Um, and they, I believe, uh, a number of Venezuelan soldiers 
or higher ups did defect uh, to Colombia. And at last I heard some weeks ago, they were languishing there, having played their role. Now they were useless. Um, so Colombia, I mean, I know Colombia has a greater role. I just, I'm not familiar with the particulars of it. And, and Bolivia, I'm sure too, in Brazil as well. Well, and again, you know, they, they kind of want to keep everything down there somewhat more right wing and conservative and less, you know, they, they just obviously frown, frown on socialism. Which, whatever. I mean, it's that, like I said before, that's kind of the guys they use to just kind of go in and kind of take over as they've done, as they've done uh, so very many times. So, I mean, again, I know you're not a you're not Cleo and you're not a prognosticator, or a soothsayer, or a psychic. We have so much going on right now, whether it's Venezuela, still stuff going on in Syria, Idlib. Supposedly there was some liberation move a couple weeks ago that I talked to you about. What's going not necessarily what's going on in the entire world, but these particular theaters, man, Iran, Venezuela, as you well know, Wesley Clark talked about, you know, seven countries in five years. Obviously, the timeline has changed, but these countries that we're seeing now are on this list. Um, you know, it, and it's and it's not even as we like to think about it. It's so political, and I like I rail against John Bolton because I know he's just an asshole and a psychopath. But this isn't so much political. The neocons want this. The neoliberals want this. Schumer, Biden, Pelosi. This is this is kind of more of an empire kind of thing. What are your thoughts on the next stage of all of this and how it trans transcends politics? Uh, well, you were right when you said um, that I'm not a prognosticator. I'm not. Um, and I tend to be more focused on on the ground things. So um, I'm not really great at fielding those kind of questions. But I would say that the uh, it seems to me, um, although the U.S. is huffing and puffing and uh, trying to bully its way around the world, it, its grasp is uh, slipping as, you know, as Russia and China step up to ally with these countries, with Iran, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea. Um, and I. I mean, I was talking with a friend who's more well-versed on economics and just like how every time the U.S. tries to, um, you know, bully China or Russia or other countries, they just turn around to find a new trading partner. So um, with China was the main example. So it's it's interesting. It seems like um, kind of like they're a wild dog that keeps lashing out and their plans mm -hmm. aren't working. You know, they, they failed in Syria. They they um, they ravaged the country. They, they they are the reason, you know, of for the loss of life in Syria. And, and they're still occupying um, parts of Syria. And they, you know, have refused to leave Syria. They're still supporting these proxy terrorists. They're still supporting the proxy, uh, you know, Kurdish forces in Syria that are have been involved in ethnic cleansing there. But um, Syria has been heroic, in my opinion, in their defense of their, their country. It's uh, it's disgusting and, and truly sad that America won't just give it up and, and you know, why don't they just, I, I mean, this is a stupid rhetorical question, but why don't they just fucking help the people of America that are desperately poor? Why don't they repair the infrastructure in America? You know, obviously they're not going to. There's that would money make too much sense, Eva. But it's just like the glaring hypocrisy. And again, I keep mentioning this, but I do feel the need to mention it. Their, their premise in Venezuela is that there's a humanitarian crisis. You know, people are starving, um, blah, blah, blah. And they don't give a shit about Palestine. They don't care about this Israeli manufactured crisis in Gaza, where people are truly on the brink of, not on, the, they're truly enduring a humanitarian crisis that's completely man-made. Um, and as you know, I, I speak from experience living there, um, and I'm very well aware of of how the poverty is affecting people in Gaza. I'm very well, well aware of how the siege, which has been in place since 2006 or seven, has devastated the lives of people in Gaza. And then there's Yemen, of course. So um, I just always like to point out this glaring hypocrisy of these these turds like Rubio and Bolton and Pompeo who pretend to care, who speak in this awful Spanish saying, we're with you, Venezuela, you know. <laughs> 
they don't give a shit about Venezuelans. Well, and I find that interesting when, when uh, and I'm not taking, whatever, when Iran supposedly funds and arms, quote unquote, Hamas, they are supporters of a terrorist organization. But when we send hundreds of billions or billions of dollars of arms to Saudi Arabia and they go and support ISIS or ISIL and then go, you know, do war crimes in Yemen, that's, you know, spreading democracy and progress, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the hypocrisy is absolutely glaring. And I, I find that very interesting, even what was going on in Venezuela. Like, here we are in this country, the immigrants, and I'm with it, you know, come into this country legally. But it's the illegal immigrants. We're going to we're willing to build a wall because they're violating our sovereignty. And this is an invading force. But when we have national interest in other countries, specifically Venezuela, we have no problem violating their their sovereignty or international law or sanction, you know, sanctioning and dead bodies, et cetera, et cetera. It's that the hypocrisy is absolutely glaring. And it's again, that's it's just so frustrating seeing this play out. I just happen to be a history guy. And there's a lot of people who listen to the show are history people who who've seen these coups take place, these regime changes, the assassination of leaders domestically and, and foreign. And then, you know, it's here we are 2019 and here the fuck we go again in South America, just like track two in Nixon, where it was Honduras, Guatemala, Chile, et cetera. It's, you know, Juan Perón in Argentina. It, it's right. just the same same thing it's just crazy and i know so, enough time has passed where people's like don't quite make that connection but it's yeah it's the same playbook it's, you know so I, let, oh sorry let me let me ask you a specific question while you were down there in venezuela had you noticed any russian groups down there because there's there's no russian military per se down there that that i know of in conversations with with the people that are that are giving me information that it is the private, you know, the private firms, you know, GRU and uh, the Wagner Group that are that are Russian private security firms that have been shipped down there to try and, you know, kind of kind of weasel around a little bit. So, uh, did you notice any Russian or Russian speaking folks or anything like that or, or Russian looking uh, gentlemen? No, no, I didn't. I mean, but that, that isn't to say. I was in Caracas. I was moving around, but no, I, I didn't. I also didn't see any Hezbollah down there. Yeah, I'm sure. The, I'm sure. If, most likely, they're sitting back in the shadows right now. But um, supposedly, there's quite a bit of that down there. And, and Harry Sargent, even I think, might have might have hired them to to kind of protect some of his oil deal and how this stuff is supposed to go down. It's a very interesting dynamic with mm. everything that's that's going on. But at the same time, you know, while while we're disgusted by what is happening down in Venezuela with the way America has gone about this. At the same time, we know what the Chinese and the Russians are up to. We know, you know, one belt, one road, a lot of things that are going on that strategically makes China a very dangerous, dangerous nation. And when we talk about Trump's tariffs, I mean, this stuff all ties together geopolitically with everybody, you know, the, the liberals complaining about the tariffs and a lot of other stuff, but in the big picture, if this stuff works, it really it defangs China, the Chinese quite a bit. And if the if the Western European nations would have jumped on with Trump on these tariffs, um, we would have taken a lot of power from China in that in that move. So, you know, there's a lot going on that I think Trump's doing right. But obviously, I don't agree with everything. But but in terms of of the the bigger picture geopolitically, we have to protect our backyard. We have to stop the Russians from being able to get their their feet dug in in a place like that. But again, at the end of the day, that's, I mean, that's almost, I mean, 
Venezuela can do business with whomever they want. If it's China, if it's Russia, and they don't want to fuck with us, that's their call. That's like that's like Iran coming over here and saying, "No, I don't want you guys doing business with X, Y, Z." It just- sure, sure, and and I'm not I'm not condoning it, but what I'm saying is, from a strategic standpoint, does it do the American people good to allow the Russians and the Chinese? to get embedded down there. No, it does not. So Venezuela isn't your backyard. <laughs> what's that? Venezuela isn't your backyard. I get I get that. I get that. But what I what I am saying is from we're we're looking at it as civilians, number one. Um, from a strategic standpoint of of global protection and things like that and, and resources and stuff. I don't necessarily I I, I mean I'm not for it. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning it. But what I'm saying is I understand why it's happening. But I mean, that's almost like why we went into Vietnam. Well, if we don't get the communists out of Vietnam, then it's going to be a domino theory throughout all of Southeast Asia. I mean, that was just pretty much horseshit. And I, I feel what you're saying from, you know, uh, from the kind of a globalist, you know, oil tycoon standpoint. I mean, they they want to they want to hedge their bets and have their interests protected. But again, you know what I mean? If if. We're sitting here. We're sitting here telling Iran, no, you can't sell oil to X, Y, Z over there in your hemisphere. How are we able to tell people? You know what I mean? It's just, it's just so weird that the rules just don't apply. Oftentimes, when we do it, kind of what we were talking about before, it's you know sovereignty and all that stuff. Protection of sovereignty only really is important unless our sovereignty is being violated or our human rights or our international law. And we cite that all the time when we go into Libya or Iran or whatever country. So it's, you know, the glaring hypocrisy is crazy. And we need, honestly, that that's kind of, we need to find a way to bridge that gap. If that's the way it's going to be, if this is going to be a game of risk or, you know, a game of stratego, then we need to be honest about it. Where it's not about democracy. It's not about spreading democracy. It's about, you know, we want what you have and we're going to take it. And we're going to have, we're going to kill your people if we need to take it. Or, you know, if, if that's what it comes down to, because right now everything's couched in we're spreading democracy or in Iraq, we're going to be greeted as liberators or whatever the line is. And we always fall for it, man. You know what I mean? Well, like I said about so- the people in the embassy, they're trespassers. They're blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this guy was democratically elected and the elections were held up by international organizations. I mean, it's just it's crazy how we rationalize this shit sometimes. You know, uh, speaking of glaring hypocrisy, you'll, you'll recall that in April 2018, we were told there was a chemical weapons attack in Duma. And then a number of us independent journalists went there and interviewed medical staff and interviewed civilians. And they said no chemical attack, no signs of uh, patients being exposed to a nerve agent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, recently, this uh, group called the Working Group on Syria has released, I think it was just yesterday, they released um, a, it's a fairly succinct um, report after having contact with people in the OPCW, that body that was supposed to do an investigation into whether or not there was a chemical attack in Duma. And um, they've uh, they provided new evidence based on these people that have come forth that that there was not, even, even the... Um, the allegations that you know these these canisters of sarin or canisters of uh, of uh, um, what's it called um, blanket chlorine were, had you know landed on a roof had broken through a roof. They actually did uh, a study, unlike the so-called expert Elliot Higgins Bellingcat. They they were actually able to analyze it and say there's no way in hell that this one um, canister landed on the roof and didn't break through, or this other canister landed and and broke through and landed on the bed. Like all the story that we were told is bogus, and they've they've got now a lot more evidence to support the fact that it was bogus. In addition to the fact that you know many of my colleagues and myself went to Duma and, and interviewed people, but I think um, 
I just want to read from from their report because I think it's really worth mentioning because this all ties in. This is part of the war propaganda that was used to implicate the Syrian government as having used chemical weapons and therefore we have to intervene. Um, the, the paper says, well, taken together, these findings establish beyond reasonable doubt that the alleged chemical attack in Duma on 7th April 2018 was staged. This raises the question of where and how did the 35 victims seen in images recorded die? Um, and it, it's pretty gruesome. They, they go on to say the images show sign of acute inhalation injury with blood and mucus flowing from the nose and mouth of most victims, even though faces had been apparently washed to remove most, most of the mucus. And it goes on to say it's, it's likely that the victims were hung upside down as they were exposed to some sort of um, gas irritant. So this is the level of sadism that played out and it's played out multiple times in Syria in, in an effort to, um, to frame the Syrian government of using chemical weapons Civilians have been have been executed by um, by terrorist groups and by you know the white helmets have been a part of this. Well, that's, yeah. that's the sad part about it. The white helmets they get Oscar nominated, yeah. and we find out that it's all horseshit. But it's just I mean that's just another layer of the propaganda. It's it's sad. Yeah, it's but, but and at some point in their uh, report, they go on to say you know what I truly believe is true. Those in the media that have been going along with this knowingly or unknowingly but most likely knowingly they're also guilty of this this crime of murdering these people because they're they're guilty of colluding with it i mean that's what i i mean it's an accessory it's an accessory to murder i mean that's technically from a legal standpoint i mean i don't i don't know if you can take that to court but yeah i mean they've been complicit in almost all of these wars quite frankly and all of the, so many of these deaths it's and here we are again you know I, I hate to keep saying the same thing like you know the iranian thing yeah you know they're they want to blow up Israel or they, you know, it's when we want to protect our borders, it's right as rain. But when other people want to protect themselves and, you know, fight these narratives like being a terror, I mean, not to even get too with this. These certain countries are demonized just to rationalize this going in, you know, Syria, for example. You know, you had like you've seen yourself every not everyone. So many people were supporting Bashar al-Assad. They know he didn't bomb his own people with chemical stuff. They knew that it was the West funding these terrorists. But that just that's not sexy and that just doesn't come from the mainstream media. And then we wind up rationalizing our continued presence there because 9-11, essentially, you know, the, the psychological impact of 9-11 opened this checkbook and opened everything for the last 20 years of this war on quote unquote terror. Yeah, if I can just plug this, uh, the, the website that I was just reading from, it's syriapropagandamedia.org. I would really encourage people to look at that because they've, this is a group of academics that have done uh, substantial research and um, research that, uh, you know, is very much needed and that the corporate media is either obviously not willing to do or, or intentionally glossing over. So I think I really hope that people would look at this report. It's very, very uh, important because again, this whole premise of a chemical attack in, in Duma was what led uh, the Americans and allies to bomb Syria over 100 times in days following that attack. That again, that's syriapropagandamedia.org. Yes. Just and also listen to some of the other episodes with with uh, Eva on because we we go in you know more in deep in depth on the other shows on um, on Syria, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, like I said, I know you're not a psychic, but, you know, I'm, obviously we hope and pray everything goes well. I'm, I'm watching right now live video outside the embassy. I'm reading the caption saying they are going to be preparing to go in and take out whatever the few people that are in there. I mean, it's it's just it's crazy to see this. This world we're living in is absolutely nuts. But uh, we obviously pray for the best. Any final thoughts, champ? Any final thoughts, Eva, on, you know, the state of this freaking crazy world? 
Go ahead, Eva. No, not in the state of this world. I'll, I'll just plug that I'm hoping to be back both in Syria and Venezuela in, near in the near future. So um, I'll just put that out there that I'll... You might want to take a trip towards Iran here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a growing list of places I need to go to. Right, right. Yeah. What, do you, what do you see? I mean, I hate to, because I don't want to put that, you know, <laughs> prognostication hat on you. But I mean, do you see an invasion of Iraq? Is this more saber rattling just to kind of for the sake of saber rattling more of a fear-based thing or do you actually see a conflict because like you said what you said iran has been in the crosshairs for a long time do you think they're finally ready to pull the trigger on it or is it just more saber rattling yeah i have no way to answer that yeah right. i don't know all right well just the, the the one thing that people need to remember with all three of these countries that we've been talking about venezuela syria and iran now where we've moved two carrier groups into position to strike iran all, all three of those countries basically are somewhat or are strong allies with Russia and China. So people need to keep that in mind when it comes to you. I just think that Syria, Syria was, look, obviously a strategic move. We were trying to get a, you know oil lines through there. But we strike Iran, and I don't think Russia and China sit on their hands much longer. I think that something, something much bigger happens. So uh, people better be prepared for for what comes of that well and, and as much as people hesitate to to speak on on israel lest you be called a, an anti-semite you know you can you can criticize ladies and gentlemen flash news you can criticize the government of israel without being mad at the israeli people the same we do with that's what you think well no i i realize that i realize that's not how it plays out but you cannot dismiss or undermine the role of Israel as it relates to our foreign policy and what goes on over there in the Middle East. Um, so I mean, that's, you know, again, large, some of this larger chess game. But it's it's just I, like to close, I guess, it's just frustrating to see them reading from the same freaking playbook. And as much as we, you know, like to have these shows and write notes, like I, you know, show prep, write notes in my notebook, et cetera, et cetera, we just don't get what these incursions really mean. People's daughters and sons and uncles and fathers and mothers are killed and we yeah. oftentimes lack that kind of empathy because it's not our family yes. members that are being killed but they are and sometimes in very very gruesome fashion so if we can maybe bridge that gap of our nationalism our political base to just realize we're humans first man and human beings are losing their lives for these these hegemonic intentions and ideals i mean and this has been going on for a very long time i just hope we just stop falling for it man because like i said people are people are losing their lives these aren't just statistics man thank you for saying that because this is where like um i come at this from an activist perspective and my activism has always been in solidarity with these people who are being targeted and as such i get to know um people in the communities that i go to and you're right like the human side of this is always left out um the people's suffering, uh, for example, the Palestinians in Gaza, it's its on so many levels. It's, it's truly unimaginable to people in the West here. We can't imagine simply what it's like to go uh, without electricity for days on end, let alone for years and years and years. They've been out without a constant supply of electricity since 2006. Then you have the, you know, the inability to export. You have farmers and fishers being literally shot at with live ammunition when they simply try to work their fields. And that's just Gaza. Like the, these different countries that are being warred upon, 
the, the humanity of the people being targeted is completely removed. So I really appreciate you saying that. Well, and, and oftentimes that narrative is, you know, we again, some of our American exceptionalism, our lack of empathy, we just see the we just see the reaction. Oh, like last week, the 15 year old kid, the handcuffed kid that got shot. You know, well, he was throwing rocks at the tank. Oh, I guess we should shoot him then. We don't, we like, again, we don't, we always see the reaction or the kid doing what he did or the person with, I'm not justifying terrorism or blowing yourself up, but we never see the things that precipitate that. You know, we over here in the West, you know, we're, if, if China or anybody came over here, you know, we have patriots and we have people who love this country who would fight and defend it to the death. But when somebody else does it on another side of the world who might sound different or talk different or have different face or whatever, we somehow, they're, you know, we just, minimize their their loss or minimize what they're going through we just want to call them terrorists and israel's always right as rain and again i'm not justifying terrorism against israel but we need to we need to understand the larger context of what is what going on so i mean i don't know that's we need to understand that everyday palestinians are subject to terrorism by the israeli forces and colonists and yeah, and we don't get that side over here in the West. So it's great to hear somebody with boots on the ground, and always, man, always, and always. I, do we do we do we want to enter into a conversation though about about the terrorist organizations that control the Palestinian people when many of the Palestinian people do not do not support what these terrorist organizations are doing at the same time? So you got organizations um, I mean, like Hamas. I, I, Israel, Israel started Hamas, but people don't understand that as a proxy against right, the PLO. And I, I've got I've got several Palestinian Christian friends who escaped from over there and, and got out of that madness, you know, and they'll tell you that, you know, these, look, terrorism is big business. Um, Hamas and Hezbollah and all these different groups, you know, one, one will Hezbollah sign a peace treaty. Hezbollah are not terrorist groups. Well, well, hold on, hold on. One will sign a peace treaty with the Israeli government, and then the other one will launch rockets because, because it's, it's big business. They don't get any money if there's nothing going on at the same time. Now, I'm not saying Mossad isn't, isn't responsible for a lot of this stuff, which they are, but me being devil's advocate and saying, look, at the same time, these organizations know that they're going to get millions upon millions upon millions of dollars as long as they keep up some sort of fight. And that's, that's also you know, a big part of this. Terrorism is money. When that comes from oftentimes the larger people who organize and fund this, because like you just said, you always have to have that bad guy, almost like cancer. There's no there's no money in curing Absolutely. cancer. There's way more money in keeping us divided and keeping the fight going. So I'm with you there. You know, I, I had to be devil's advocate for this entire episode. I apologize. But that's, that's just where I have to jump in and do that. You weren't devil's advocate the whole episode. You're right. You know, you were right with us. Yeah. There's, there's no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can understand devil's that, but there's really, like I said, the historical presence, we've seen this play out over and over again. There's really no defending the indefensible, not to say that that's what you're doing, but I, I hear people and I see them online who are, and I guess I've said this before many times on the show, people's ignorance of history is, it can be very, very dangerous because unless you know the, the precedent, the stuff that's gone on. I mean, to me, this is just crazy. This is just track two. This is the same thing we, like I said, Al right. Allende and Guzman right. and Perón. And here we are, twenty thirty. Conversation. This is a conversation of three people who really understand a lot of the the bigger picture, where sure. most most Americans only see, you know, on on mainstream news. Correct. Correct. You know, the, the, that one that one angle, and that's all they understand. And and kill Maduro and. And everything else. And Socialism's and terrible, <laughs> which again, it's not a referendum on socialism. That's just kind of what they're going to use to go in and do what they're going to do sure, in Venezuela. Sure. So. Yeah, sad state of affairs. And we'll see how it plays out, man. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully love will prevail, which I don't think it will, but you know, 
I can always wish. Eva, thank you so much. Where can we uh, check you out? Your social networking, all that good stuff. Where can we find you? Eva Bartlett. We may have lost her. What? How did we lose Eva? Let's try. You want to thank our. You want to thank our sponsors again, bud. Yeah, hold on. Let's try to get Eva back, man. We can't have her. One moment, ladies and gentlemen. We are getting Eva back with us. But yeah, we will definitely thank the sponsors. New sponsors. Excited about it, man. Oh, she didn't get mad at me being devil's advocate. No, there's nothing to get mad. Like I told you, you're you're a grown ass man, dog. Well, trying to get hold of Eva, but yes, thank you to Chemical Free Body. If you guys seriously, if you are serious about your health, Greens 85 specifically, man. Greens 85. Um, chemicalfreebody.com. Just go check their check their stuff out, man. Chemicalfreebody.com front slash farmer. Promo code farmer if you check out and want to buy some products. Mypatriotsupply.com. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if disaster strikes, you want to be prepared. Failure to prepare is preparation to fail. Prepare with the farm.com 888-803-1218. Uh, if you want to talk to somebody about it, otherwise go to the go to prepare.com. Prepare with the farm.com to check out the sales that they have. We have a one week and two week uh, package for you. And then the C4.com, the concealed carry clothing company. Exercise your Second Amendment right in style and comfort. But um, yeah, it was a good episode, man. So hopefully we can get her back here in the next second so she can sign off. But if not, Champ, as always, it has been a pleasure. Yeah, very interesting episode. I enjoyed it. And there's a lot going on down there. Keep your eye on Iran. Very, very interesting over there. That's that's where the big stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, not to say, not to discount what's going on in Venezuela, but absolutely. If Venezuela, was... Venezuela is like, that's like putting a, a baby pen around a, a country for America. But Iran is a, that's a, a totally one. whole, uh, that's a whole nother level of, of weaponry, of allies, of global positioning that's 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 as big as the ball gets right there yeah that that's and like you said that's going to bring in a lot of other players uh, yes whether china or or russia but um all right i don't think uh, something happened with eva i don't know if i went, went down but um thank you everyone for joining us for this episode thank you to eva bartlett um you could check her out she's on twitter and facebook just uh punch her in she's a little bit of everywhere so she's not too hard to find champ any any final closing comments from you bro I'm good. I'm good. We uh, need to get another episode done this week. We're gonna. We've got a great, great episode coming up. That uh, normally we don't do two in one week, but we're gonna do another one, so everybody can stay tuned for that. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, and we have a swap cast coming up that is going to be amazing. I don't want to give away who's on it or what it's about, but uh, it's pretty, pretty heavy hitting stuff, and it's on a subject that everybody knows about or thinks they know about but uh it's it's deep this rabbit hole goes deep so thank you everyone appreciate you guys joining us check out www.theconspiracyfarm.com as the website is up it's your one-stop shop for all things conspiracy farm the sponsors archived episodes videos and more but um thank you guys till next time peace so much love <laughs>